sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and we roll on into January with a former UK intelligence officer, paratrooper, with more than 20 years producing strategic and operational advice to Fortune 500 companies, aerospace and government clients. Frank also shares his interest in post-quantum military tech, UFOs, UAPs, geopolitics and international relations. And I quite enjoy watching his uh, his Twitter battles and debates <laughs> or, or on the social media channels as well. So Frank Milburn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, brother. Um, I appreciate it. And I wanted to say congratulations um, for coming so far with your podcast. And I was also wanted to say like a special thanks to Dan uh, for following the um, the constitutional developments uh, with all the different uh, ins and outs and all the twists um, in the various uh, bills in, in Congress and the Senate and the House of Representatives, because it's not the easiest thing to follow. And Dan's really converted himself into, uh, you know, into an expert on that. And, and I've been tuning into your channel to basically get the latest updates, because it's not the easiest thing to follow. Um, so um, thank you both very much for that. No, it's great. And listen, I I look at it as if... I don't know a lot of that stuff, and I asked Dan to go and check it out, and he does that anyway, but in helping myself out, it helps other people out, so that's good, because I think we've all got the same kind of questions, and you can tune in sometimes to various podcasts, and especially to the ones on the kind of, in the US side of things, because they understand that more, and they get how their politics works a lot better, so you, ha- you have a lot of people who don't necessarily understand the workings of it, and, and all the little um, little nuances, so it's been great having Dan kind of break that stuff down, and, and glad you've got the use out it as well frank so yeah very much appreciated thank no, Dan's you done, done a great job the other thing that i wanted to say um for your listeners um how i really became kind of like you know, acquainted with you guys uh it was in april of this year um you uh you andy and jay at project unity you did what i consider to be kind of two groundbreaking interviews with uh luis elizondo um, which really kind of developed our understanding of uap technology and where he was going with it and I took those back to the Beggins Sedat Center for Strategic Studies, where I'd written my first paper. And uh, those two groundbreaking interviews were uh, kind of, I'd say, like, you know, 70 percent the meat of uh, of my second paper that I wrote on, on UAP. Um, so I want to thank you guys for that. I mean, you and Jay did a fantastic job on those interviews. And it really opened up kind of Elizondo in a way that we hadn't seen before. So thank you for that. No, thanks. I appreciate that. And I like to think there's a, 
a lot of channels out there that are developing their own styles and tones and you, you can certainly jump about a few shows now and hear very different takes and questions and yeah so I, I really appreciate that as well so thank you very much Frank um, but listen uh, today's show is all about you and uh, we tried to arrange this now about seven weeks ago initially and uh, I got COVID and all that stuff that came along with it and and here we are now well little peek behind the curtain we're recording this on new year's eve so uh, as, as we speak people are out and getting ready to party and whatnot but we're having a what's going to be a very interesting discussion here um but it's going to be released into the new year so happy new year 2022 when everyone else hears this frank uh you've you've led a very interesting life so far and i'm sure there's a lot more interesting life to be lived but take us a little bit through your background uh, a former uk intelligence officer paratrooper You've you've done quite a lot already. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I I, I was um, I followed basically the the example of my family um, into the military. Uh, my father was in the Royal Scots Greys, and later in the Parachute Regiment, um, and then later in the Special Air Service. And uh, my family regiment uh, was is the Royal Scots Greys, although I didn't go into the Greys. But my grandfather served with the Greys in, in World War Two. Uh, my stepfather also, uh, he was in the Argyll and Southern Highlanders and then uh, in the Parachute Regiment and then the Special Air Service. Uh, my godfather was in the Coldstream Guards and later in the Parachute Regiment. Uh, my other godfather um, actually commanded SAS. Um, as I said, uh, and my other grandfather as well on my mother's side, he served in both world wars. So that was kind of really my impetus for, for joining the UK military. Um, we've got actually a very long line. Um, of, of of military service stretching back like literally hundreds of years, uh, sort of father to son. So I really, you know, I, I always wanted to be a soldier and I joined at 17 and um, I joined the Army Reserve as a paratrooper. And uh, and from there, um, I did okay in school. I, I got offered a place at the London School of Economics, uh, which was paid for by the military. Um, so I joined uh, university as an Army scholar. I did international relations. And I was offered a place at, at Sandhurst on the back of that. And, um, and then from Sandhurst, I was uh, recruited into, into military intelligence. Um, and the rest is kind of like history, really. But it was uh, very, very fascinating. And, and it was uh, you know, both a, a joy and, uh, and a reward to serve my country. Yeah, no, and thank you for, for that service as well. Um, we've spoken to a lot of you know, US military and, and such on the podcast. And I think you're the first uh, UK um, serviceman. So again, thank you very much. And a few of the listeners echoed that sentiment as well. And all of that background and that history and that rich family history, at what point do you come to have an interest in UFOs? Was it from a young age or is it something that came later? No, it's from a very young age. Um, my family, uh, you know, my mum and my dad were, you know, sort of very open-minded. I was brought up with kind of like, you know, sort of histories of Atlantis and, you know, Charles Bur Burlitz, Mysteries of Atlantis, um, Eric Von Daniken, <laughs> and, uh, and I've got some UFO books um, here, actually, that I inherit inherited from my dad, which are from the 1960s, like Sanderson, you know, Uninvited Visitors. Um, and uh, let's just say when I was in the military, I, I got a, an increased appreciation for UAP. But it's one of those things, you kind of like leave it alone when you leave. And I just kind of like put it on the back burner. You know, we've all got busy lives. We've got things to do. We all want to like follow careers. Um, I kept in touch with UAP sort of reading books over the years. Um, but it wasn't really until about 2016. I got onto the uh, the Richard Dolan members site. And um, I kind of got involved with that. And I was writing things on the site. And then um, 
I was kind of like, well, you know, I should start writing about things myself because I'm accumulating all the information and it's fascinating me and it's kind of really drawn me in. My background is as a uh, sort of post-military, I work with oil and gas companies in the Middle East. Um, so I was advising clients kind of like board level downwards to, you know, like locals on the ground on, um, you know, security issues, political risk, regulatory risk, how to operate on the ground and kind of like, you know, sort of medium to high risk environments from North Africa to, to the Middle East. And um, I kind of like transferred that across to UAP. I, I wrote a few papers on the Middle East uh, for various think tanks, uh, Israeli think tanks. And um, then my interest just got, was, became captivated by UAP. Um, so I went from being kind of like a, a Middle East analyst to being a, a sort of a, a UAP uh, strategic uh, studies, national security analyst, I guess you'd call it. I wouldn't call myself a, a ufologist per se. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of great research in, in ufology, a lot of fantastic research. There's also a lot of baggage in ufology as well. Um, and the way I approached it initially was really kind of like nuts and bolts and as from, you know, from a national security perspective. But since kind of like 2016, my mind has like really been blown uh, and, and kind of opened up. And I mean, you, I spend a lot of time talking with people like Colonel John Alexander, um, people who've been at places like Skinwalker and, you know, people, I talk to a lot of people who work on sensitive government projects as well. And it's just really opened up my mind to the whole kind of consciousness aspect as well of it. Um, so I've gone very, very far from 2016, where I was just looking at like nuts and bolts UFOs to uh, looking at the whole range of phenomena, the whole kind of uh, weird, spooky, uh, you know, high strangeness of it. There's a lot to unpack there, and th but the first thing that comes to my mind is you, you talk about that time you had in the military. What was the general conversation? Did did you have chats with your kind of fellow servicemen and women ever about UFOs? Did it ever come up just in the kind of banter back and forward? And and what was that conversation if there was? It did, but it's it's nothing that I can talk about, and and I don't say that being um um you know being. I am reticent to say that, uh, but I, I can't talk about any conversations that I've had or any information that I came across as a result of my service because the, the Official Secrets Act is all-encompassing. Um, I spent a lot of time with the Royal Air Force. I spent time flying on AWACS. I spent a lot of time on uh, RAF bases, uh, you know, in the officer's mess, uh, you know, chatting with pilots and also debriefing pilots. Um, so let's just say that that piqued my interest. I can't really go into more depth than that. Sure. So it sounds like there was an interest there, not just on your part, but probably from other people as well, which which is always good, especially from a UK point of view. And I'd love to talk to you now about that UK point of view. Why is it taking the UK at at the as it seems on the, the front of things to get so involved in this subject? Because we still seem like we are years and years behind other countries and continents. I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh one is um is that the UK is, you know, it's a highly secretive state. Um, I was part of that kind of secret state. I'll give an example. Um, you know, when I was a young officer in Northern Ireland, a young intelligence officer, uh, there were things that, uh, you know, we were doing that, you know, the politicians had no idea what we were doing. They just give you a mandate to operate and you operate. And it's all based on need to know. Um, it's very, very compartmentalized. That's one reason. I think the second reason is um, that, uh, the UK is very much following um, the UK, the, the, the American uh, leadership on this. And we saw that as well in, um, in the whole, um, you know, Rendlesham Forest incident where, where basically mm -hmm. the UK kind of abrogated uh, sovereignty effectively and allowed uh, the head of the American Air Force to come over to the UK 
um, and to basically take over the investigation. So I think the UK plays very much second fiddle to, to the Americans on that. And I think it's a very, very sensitive issue. Um, I was going to say my experiences in the UK military, okay, uh, and I'll say this tongue in cheek, um, compared to what I saw and compared to what you see in Project Condine, uh, you know, the report, uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in the UK Air, De Air Defence Region, uh, are very, very different. And that's all I can say. Sure. Uh, and from a UK point of view, you said that we are following the US's lead. The US, uh, as it seems, is talking about this in the mainstream. You're hearing about it on, you know, the when the White House does their, their daily press briefings. There was a time, especially back in May, April, May, June this year, where yeah. or last year, if you're listening to this in 2022, there was a lot of questions and press briefings. We don't seem to have that in the UK. We had one small um, raising of the question. Uh, Baroness Goldie, I believe, was involved in that, where it was yeah. pretty much laughed off and poo-pooed back in the summer. Um, when it was brought up that you know the US are taking this subject seriously, do the U do the UK government have any plans to follow that? And it was laughed off. Do you think? Again, I know you're coming from a place of knowledge with some of this as well, so I appreciate those answers can be a bit difficult. But is there much more of an interest in the background in this subject? Or are we happy to let the US take the lead in the sense that just do what you want? The UK doesn't want anything to do with it. Look, I'd say there's very much uh, a UK interest in the subject. Uh, you only have to look at Project Condine. And now, although it's kind of tongue in cheek, it says, um, you know, it was of no uh, intelligence interest. OK, but then you look and it says uh, the UK would consider UAP to th a threat if they were able to penetrate the UK air defense region. Um, uh, yeah, so you have to kind of read between the lines. If the UK, if UAP were able to penetrate the UK air defense region, if they were able to defeat radars, if they were able to, uh, you know, evade fighters and, uh, and ground and ground based, uh, you know, interception, um, then we would consider that a threat. So I think you have to read between the lines on that one. And I think there's very much an interest. Now, I'm not saying that there was some kind of big cover up with Project Condine. What I'm saying is I don't think that the guy who wrote it, and he's very capable, and you guys did a great article on it as well. The guy was uh, a pilot, I believe, air crew. And he also had a, you know, a, a, a scientific background in radar technologies. I just don't think he had all the, I don't think he had access to all the information available when he was making his report. And, and, and also it was based at secret level. If you look at the report, it's secret level. So if... If there were a UK effort looking at uh, UAP, it would be, uh, you know, top secret and above. Do you think, because for decades and decades, the the lore of, of UFOs and ufology, there's that dirty word that you used before as well, that's got so many connotations. From a United States point of view, we hear about all these secret cabals and, you know, rooms within governments, rooms within rooms within rooms, hidden underground, bases in mountains, Area 51, Groom Lake, yeah. S4. Yet, from a UK point of view, there seems to be nothing. But if, if you read between those lines that we do have an interest, are we just, or are the UK so much better at keeping all that quiet? Because that seems to be a hell of a lot that's come out over the years from the United States. I think the UK maybe is better at keeping things quiet. I mean, for example, you know, Elizondo um, and others who've had, uh, you know, top secret, you know, TSCI clearances can talk about things within certain parameters, whereas I can't. Um, and I'm not saying that I have the same kind of knowledge as Elizondo. Um, maybe interesting knowledge, but I, I don't have, you know, maybe the breadth of knowledge that he does. Um, in terms of like a panoramic view of what was going on in terms of UAP. 
Um, but I think um, the UK has to be very, very careful um, about what it uh, what it emits, what it disseminates to the public, and what it doesn't. And I think for year for years and years, it's been such a kind of taboo subject. Um, I've talked to Nick Pope about this, and you know he's got like one view. He was at the you know the Ministry of Defence, obviously collating these kind of reports. I was kind of like on the ground uh, talking to people. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a lot more going on in the UK as regards UAP than came out in Project Comdine and that the, UA, uh, that, the U, that the UK government is prepared to talk about now. There's a lot more. The Condine report, one of the suggestions was that UAP, UFOs uh, could be a plasma. I would ask you what your thoughts are on this, because for me, even the reference that, oh, yeah, it could be some sort of plasma phenomenon doesn't mean that it's not something potentially non-human. Yeah, but it also says um, the Condon report that uh, you know that UAP exists are you know is indisputable, and that uh, you know these objects can uh, you know outmaneuver uh, you know the you know fighter interceptors and and, and ground based missiles, right? And that can maneuver in extraordinary ways. So I'm not convinced that it's just a, a plasma that is responsible for that. Um, they talk extensively in Condon. I mean, it's a 400 page report. They talk extensively about plasmas. Uh, in the context of, um, you know, uh, radar decoys and kind of like exotic military technologies, I think plasmas could be one uh, could be one kind of conclusion that you could draw about UAP. But I think there's a lot of other possibilities as well. And I think since the Condine report, you know, what we've seen, for example, with um, you know the West Coast sightings, uh, uh, sorry, the East Coast sightings in the US, and you know the the SoCal, the Southern California sightings, and like Nimitz, I think there's a lot more to UAP than, than plasma. Every time we talk about this subject, and I mean just people with an interest in UFOs generally, we talk about the potential for it being a, a more terrestrial explanation, i.e. US, Russian or Chinese technology. Does the UK enjoy being left out of that conversation in terms of those are the three big superpowers, they have all this secret tech? Now, as much as you can, where does the UK sit in terms of advanced drone technology you know advanced military technology because we tend not to be involved in those conversations but i'm sure there's something there uh the uk is one of the, the preeminent military powers in the world um you only have to look at the fact that uh when you look for example i was looking today at um i was looking at a, a drive article and it was on the uh the u.s navy's railgun right and it had like you know BAA, BAA, bae systems right written down the side of the railgun uh, the, BA, the British aerospace and British defence contractors in general, because there's a whole swath of of, uh, of defence contractors from you know uh, from actually producing like the, the big ticket items down to like you know the nuts and bolts, literally nuts and bolts. Um, the, the, the British are dug in deeper than Alabama tick, I believe, when it comes to to, to the UAP uh, issue, uh, and there's a lot more there. Let me ask you then, and I suppose this comes from just as came on to my the top of my head there. If we are talking that the UK, the sorry, the US, China and Russia, those three big superpowers are potentially harboring some pretty amazing technologies of their own. They're spying on each other. There's drones buzzing each other's uh, Navy ships and whatnot. What would be the next country? Would it be the UK that would sit next in that list of, of countries with that sort of technology? Or would it be something else? Well, no, I think the UK is like well up there with the Americans uh, because there's almost kind of like a seamless kind of transfer of technology between the US and the UK, and there always has been. 
Um, I would say that uh, probably, you know, the, the, the UK would be ahead of Russia in terms of technology because traditionally, uh, you know, the UK is an open society. So that kind of breeds uh, more innovation. And that's why, you know, Britain's a small country, but we've got like, uh, you know, the fifth or sixth biggest uh, kind of arms exports in the world, right? We've always punched above our weight, the Brits. Uh, you know, Brits are highly innovative and we've always been leaders in military technology. You only have to look at our performance in World War II and, uh you know, the fact that together with the Americans, together with the Australians, the Canadians, uh, you know, the Aussies and New Zealanders, uh, we're, we're part of, you know, the most, the, the most uh, you know, advanced intelligence network in the world, um, you know, the, the five eyes. So um, I would put the UK definitely on a par uh, technology wise, you know, with both Russia, China. And, uh, you know, as I said, the, the, with the Americans, it, it's seamless technology. Uh, transfer in some cases. The F-22 is the only thing that the Americans haven't transferred to their allies. But if you look uh, like the F-35, they've given it to, you know, the, the, the Brits are involved in F-35, the Norwegians are involved, the Italians are involved. Okay, the Turks are booted out because they wanted to buy S-400 from the Russians. Um, but uh, th th there's a pretty, ver there's a very, very close technology uh, transfer agreement between, uh, you know, specific allies. Uh, Obviously, the, the English-speaking countries, as I said, the Ozkanukas, as it's called, you know, the Five Eyes, are kind of like the closest. Uh, Israel, obviously, is, is very, very close to the Americans as well. And I know that uh, from my work with the Begin uh, Sedat Center for Strategic, for Strategic Studies. Um, but, uh, no, the Brits are well up there. Now, you mentioned the, the East Coast events that happened back in 2004 and beyond, and no doubt before 2004 as well, but the most famous one, the, the Nimitz-Princeton. Are there any events like that that you've come across or you've heard of that have happened elsewhere in the world that you feel are overlooked? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I talked about this, I think it was on... Um, I think it was on uh, Unidentified Celebrity Review. Um uh, that a, a, a guy I'd worked with uh, who was kind of a mentor to me, um, an older guy, um, I worked for him when I came out of the military uh, in a very small firm uh, doing um, sort of very confidential, um, you know, kind of type uh, risk management uh, and reporting for uh, Fortune, Fortune uh, 500 and FTSE 100 companies. And he told me he'd been in counterintelligence and in the late 50s, uh, there was an incident on the inner German border uh, where um, the East Germans and the Russians, they'd launched uh, six fighters towards the inner German border. Um, on the NATO side, there'd been uh, four British fighters, uh, which were um, launched, uh, basically scrambled to intercept them. And then from north to south, south traveling, sorry, in a, in a, in a south-north direction, traveling along the inner German border when Germany was divided, uh, there was a very large uh, unidentified flying object, which had, uh, uh, this person told me it was like, you know, the size of a couple of aircraft carriers, according to its, its, uh, its radar signature. And it literally, uh, it merged plot with the six uh, Eastern Bloc fighters and the four NATO fighters, and then uh, basically continued in a, in a, in a south-north direction. And uh, the East Bloc fighters and the NATO fighters completely disappeared. And there was no wreckage ever found on the ground. And uh, then the person that I was working for, he was in counterintelligence. The British and the Americans, they went around all the NATO radar sites. Everybody was told to basically shut up. Everybody was reminded of their security oaths and all the radar tapes were confiscated. Those are the types of, uh, of incidents which are being covered up by the military uh, because it shows that uh, the military, 
you know, NATO and also, you know, the Warsaw Pact in those days, the Russians, the Chinese in these days, the Brazilians, the Indians, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, anybody who has, you know, advanced military technology and, uh, you know, a, a technologically advanced air force do not have control over their skies. And those are the kinds of things that have been covered up. And do you think those types of incidents where pilots go missing or or their, their craft crash because of one of these events are far more common than they were led to believe? I would believe so, yes. And I believe uh, you have to read between the lines here. Uh, I would say that uh, the incidents of uh, air intercepts where uh, unidentified craft penetrate uh, you know, um, an air defense region of the United States, of NATO, of the UK, uh, are far higher than we are being led to believe. And I did a, for uh, American anti-gravity um, and for, um, yeah, for American anti-gravity, I did a, a short 20-minute presentation a couple of weeks ago on uh, unidentified aerial phenomena in the Canary Islands using uh, uh, declassified Spanish reports, okay? And there were multiple scrambles of interceptors to... Uh, you know, to investigate objects that were that, that were not supposed to be there, that were not uh, commercial aircraft, that were not uh, adversarial aircraft, and that were not Spanish aircraft. Is there also, and this is we're talking from from a military point of view, but commercially, is there an understanding or, or train of thought that some of these commercial craft that go missing out over the ocean or crash, there's ever been incidents where? a UAP has been involved, but again, that's covered up and put down to some kind of technical or malfunction. That can go into the realms of conspiracy theory chat, I know, but I do wonder if that sometimes can happen and it's just it's easily dismissed. Well, there's the Mantell case in the US in, in the late 1940s. Um, and also there's uh, there's the book, uh, you know, Shoot Them Down uh, by Frank Faschino, no, I believe his name is. So there's a lot more going on, I believe. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the U.S. military, the U.K. military, NATO, they don't want to talk about it. The U.S. You don't however, want to say to is... the public that uh, you don't have control over your skies, right? I mean, you've just been through the Cold War and you've successfully uh, stopped the Russians uh, or the Soviets and then the Russians penetrating like your airspace. And then now suddenly, you know, well, not suddenly, but you've got these kind of like these UAP, which are penetrating your airspace. You can't exactly turn around and go, oh, well, we managed to stop the Russians invading. We stopped the Soviets invading and then the Russians, but we can't stop these things flying into our airspace with impunity. If you look at the history, for example, of the Brits, um, there was never a successful penetration in the whole of the Cold War uh, of, you know, like a Russian uh, long-range bear bar- bomber or reconnaissance aircraft uh, trying to penetrate the UK air defense region. They never managed to because there was always a fighter scramble and a fighter intercept that, uh, that basically, you know, said, you know, basically F off before you get into our airspace. But UAP seemed to enter airspace with impunity. From a, a US point of view, there's always been chat, especially recently, of religious beliefs within parts of the Department of Defense and Pentagon that yeah. sway people's thoughts that they're demonic or angelic or whatever those labels may mean. And that can very much direct how people act towards this subject within the halls of government. Is that similar for from a UK point of view, as far as your understanding as well? I've never seen that. Um, and when I was in military intelligence, I never saw any hint at all that religion uh, played any part in decision making or 
influenced uh, analyses, especially in intelligence. I never saw that. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, in the British Army, you have, um, you know, like kind of like chapel service and you'll go and there'll be like, you know, a Muslim imam uh, in uniform, in British uniform, part of the British chaplaincy, uh, you know, department. Uh, there'll be like, you know, a Catholic uh, father. There'll be a, a padre, a Protestant padre, right? So uh, there'll be, you know, a Jewish rabbi as well, also in British uniform. It's it's very, very integrated. And it's very, very open-minded. I've never, ever seen that in the British military. No, and that's that's understandable then, because even our politics doesn't lean that heavily religious, and I think it's something that the British public tend not to sway too much towards in a political conversation, whereas in the US we do see that, especially what the kind of highlights and clips we get to see over, over this side of the pond. You mentioned about countries not wanting to talk about this for those reasons we were mentioning before with pilots going down or going missing um however the us as we know from 2017 has been more open whether they wanted to be uh, or not their hands sort of been forced a little bit by messrs elizondo Mellon, tom delong halput of all, all those gents who were involved in these projects and and no doubt countless others and i suppose i have to give um, senator harry Reid an acknowledgement here given he's just passed away a couple Rest of days ago as well yeah, um, he done a lot of work that I'm sure I said, I think when I posted on social media that we haven't even heard of or are even aware of at this point and, and may never find out either. But a bit of a trailblazer, truly, in what he done and, and his lofty positions within government. And part of all that work that he put in place, uh, Susan Goh at the Department of Defence has had a rough time of it over the last couple of years, doing a lot of backpedalling as well. Backpedalling so fast you could have came back across the Atlantic, I think, at times. Now... In the DOD, they are trying to position the office, the AOIMSG, as a solution to the UAP bill that was signed by President Biden. And there's been a bit of rumour and debate online. Uh, I was I was speaking back and forward with uh, Roger Glassell, who said it looked like AOIMSG was going to be the, the office this was all directed to. I didn't feel that's what Susan Goh's statement was. Do you think it's going to be something that comes and goes? Do you think it's going to run alongside the UFO office that is set up, or, or what are your thoughts? A-O-M-I-S-N-G. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's it's definitely been an attempt to obfuscate the issue. I don't see how long-term, once, well, now that the the NDAA is entered into law with all the aspects of the Gillibrand, Rubio, and Gallego put into it, I don't see how long-term... Um, you can you, you're going to have to have you can have two departments coexisting together because uh, principles principles of intelligence right is that you have to have uh, centralized control yeah and you have to have economy of effort so it doesn't make sense to have two different departments like covering the same thing now I know there's a lot of overlap between um, the U.S. intelligence community and between the U.S. intelligence community and the wider kind of like you know Western intelligence community. But this really doesn't make sense long term. Um, but what remains to be seen is whether, you know, how, um, you know, the, the department proposed by the Pentagon will be in conflict with what has been mandated by law by the NDAA. And I think the NDAA, you know, has to win out. And I think long term, if the DOD and the intelligence community try to obfuscate, then they're really going to come unstuck with, uh, you know, congressional people. Uh, because, you know, like people like Gillibrand, they put their life and soul into this effectively. And they put their reputations into this. And I don't think that they're going to tolerate any kind of obfuscation long term. But at the same time, there is a lot of potential in a bureaucracy uh, to obfuscate, 
uh, to not to, to follow. They can follow the letter of the law, but maybe not the spirit of the law. And that's what concerns me. It comes across a little bit when it was announced, like if you're watching Deal or No Deal and you're holding all the big numbers there and only one of the little blue boxes is left and the dealer's called up and offered you £50. Yeah. And you've still got all, you've got all the cards and you could have all of this, but you know why not just settle for this? And it, it just seemed to kind of be a pretty poor attempt at a kind of sideswipe on the subject as well. And like you say, I, I don't see why both offices couldn't exist for a short period of time but it makes no sense surely at all and for me Susan Goh's response and like I say I was having a, a very adult um, and reasoned debate with Roger Glassell about it I didn't think her responses to him indicated that AOI MSG was going to be the office and only that it would be compliant as to what the NDAA was was looking to achieve but that doesn't mean that what they're looking to do through the Gillibrand amendment and, and others isn't going to come into effect and be the main office. So I don't think people have got anything to worry about there. No doubt there'll be some positioning in the background going on, but I'm sure the I'm sure the good guys went out on that one in the end. Yeah, I, I think a big point for me, and I pointed this out on uh, Unidentified Celebrity Review, I was like, well, um, Rich Hoffman from the SCU, you know, I'm, a, I'm an SCU member, um, he pinged me a message on Signal. He was like, oh, you know, he goes, uh, you know, we've been putting the amendment and, you know, SCU is going to have... Uh, you know, candidates, you know, we're going to, if it passes law, we're going to be able to be put forward for this, uh, this overarching, you know, this committee, this advisory committee. And to me, uh, that was a big kind of blow in the advisory committee. And it would have included like SCU, it would have included, um, you know, Galileo Project, it would have included uh, NASA amongst others, right? So if you're DOD and you're intelligence committee, why would you have a problem with security cleared uh, professionals and then also there's the paragraph that says you know uh, that DOD and the IC can accept advice from uh, you know non-DOD and non-IC you know, uh, security cleared professionals why would you have a problem with that and I reached out to Chris Mellon about this and he was kind of like no comment but I, re- I reached out to somebody else who is intimately involved with the process and they said the fact that Mellon and Elizondo were involved and that were likely to be uh, basically elected by the Galileo project uh, to uh, be on this advisory board, that didn't help. And that the DOD and the IC didn't want to have any more, uh, you know, any more supervision whatsoever. They didn't want to have any more accountability. And it's like, well, and, and, and the source also said they were worried about security issues. But if your security cleared, because it said minimum security clearance, but if you're going to be, if, you, if you're going to be advising, and with this, in the Gillibrand Amendment, it said it would advise on uh, basically, uh, you know the uh, you know using sensors and and, and how to uh, you know basically use your intelligence assets to capture UAP, uh, not in a physical sense. Then you would have to be cleared, like to probably top secret TCI, to have access to those satellites and those platforms, right? Why would you have a problem if people are security cleared? You would only have a problem if you're DoD and IC if you don't want more oversight. Who would you have on those boards if you, if you were part of that committee and ultimately Frank Milburn could sign it off? Who would you be picking? Would it be Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon or would you be looking at others who are maybe nameless at this point? No, I mean, uh, Chris would definitely be on there. Lou would definitely be on there. Uh, Avi Loeb would definitely be on there. Uh, I mean, I, I had no problem with the, the, with a scientific committee. I mean, like, you know, why shouldn't NASA be on it? Why shouldn't Galileo Project be on it? Why shouldn't SCU be on it? You know, I, I'd want, uh, you know, uh, Robert Powell, 
um, from SCU, Rich Hoffman to be there as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, they're American patriots anyway. It's not like they're going to divulge secrets to the Russians. Right? It's like, and they would have to pass a security clearance if they don't have already. And I know that Rich Hoffman already has it because he already worked for the UK, mili- for, for, sorry, for the US military. So there's absolutely no reason to exclude them, whatever. And that's just another example of obf- obfuscation. As someone who worked in intelligence themselves, Lou Elizondo has a book coming out next year that's very much looked forward to and well-publicized. How difficult could that be when someone like Lou may or may not be elected into a position within this, you know, board or or this office? Is that something that that could hinder that? Or can that still be released? Obviously, it's going to be vetted. How does that affect his position? Well, I don't know, because I haven't read the book yet, but um, what I've seen of Lou so far, I don't see why it's going to hinder anything that he's done. Um, I have to say from the start, I have uh, i wouldn't say like I'm a believer, but I've always had uh, confidence in Lou Elizondo. I mean, you know, he, he's been slagged down rotten by a lot of people, and I have done, I have been as well, right? For, I've got a counterintelligence background, and so does he. So I kind of understand where he's coming from. Uh, but I don't think... Um, I believe, yeah, you know, he has to keep certain things back uh, because he, as I do, because he has a security clearance to maintain, uh, just as I have security oaths uh, that I have to maintain. And also, you know, the fact that I would never betray my country. And he's the same. He's an American patriot. I'm a British patriot. And, you know, we would never do anything to compromise the security of our respective countries, nor of, you know, the joint alliance that we have. Um, So... I can't say because I haven't read his book yet, um, but uh, I hope he goes from strength to strength. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of his and I'm a fan of, uh, of Chris Mellon's. But let, let's not be any, in any doubt here. Right? I've said from the start that uh, uh, Lou and Chris, they're not about um, UOP transparency per se. Yeah, they are. Uh, but they're not about uh, hanging all out, you know, hanging it all out on the on the washing line. OK, these guys, they want to see this is my personal opinion based on the paper that I wrote, based on your and, uh, and, Jay, and Jay's interviews with, with Elizondo, uh, Elizondo used the very terms himself. He said, once Congress are interested in UAP, then I think it will be a fait accompli, which is the title of my paper, that they will want to have a UAP project. They want, Lou and Chris want to have, uh, they want to have like a 23, a 25,000, a 20, 20, 25 or $30 billion project which uh, unites all the different special access programs under one roof. Because Eric Davis has cons- consistently said, you reach these stumbling blocks, you reach these bottlenecks uh, in a special access program because you can't talk to anybody outside them. And I believe that Lou and Chris, uh, they want to get access to these special access programs. They want to unite it under one roof in a big project because for 70 years, there hasn't been enough progress, according to them. And they are American patriots and they want to get ahead of the Russians and the Chinese. Just as... Uh, you know, Dr. Eric Davis said, by 2040, we need to have our engineering and physics approximating the capabilities of the Tic Tacs. And do you I think, think this that's... is all well documented now? Sure. Do you think that's the right way to go about this then, as to to do that, have that big project, get it all under one roof? But also, I'd like to ask you, is that benefiting the US and the US only? Or does that still ultimately help humanity as a whole? Okay, let, let, let's uh, break that down into two questions. Yeah, ultimately, it's going to help the US. Um, as I put in my first paper, um, quoting Harry Reid, 
he said, uh, you know, the development of ATIP when he was talking about ORSAP, but he said, you know, this will benefit the DOD in ways uh, as not yet, you know, uh, unimaginable uh, to uh, perpetuate American, uh, you know, uh, preeminence and dominance on, on the world sphere. And I'm all for that because at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to live in a world that's ruled by, you know, Russia, China or North Korea. Okay. Um, the second part of that, how can it help humanity? Yeah, sure. I think there will be uh, spin-off technologies, but I think it's extremely dangerous to assume uh, that uh, you know things like free energy or, autom- or anti-gravity are automatically going to be like disseminated into the private sphere because I think they're incredibly dangerous. Just as you would not expect, um, uh, you know, the latest uh, American ICBM or nuclear technology to be disseminated to Iran or North Korea. So why would you expect? the you know uap technology to be disseminated to the world i think it's a it's a very delicate question look i i want to help humanity and i would like to see you know every indian village uh you know every village every poor village in brazil okay every poor village in africa with like a free energy vice that would be awesome and nobody has to pay for energy but i just really don't think that that's going to happen yeah, I can appreciate that. And it's one of those, it's blue sky thinking, isn't it? That And Dan and I discussed this on one of the What If episodes the day after disclosure, that people will still have to go to work. People will still be in hospital ill. Uh, people will still run out of fuel. There will still be holes in the ozone layer in places. There will still be climate issues. It doesn't change overnight, if, if at all, within decades. I remember reading, and I've mentioned this, I'm sure, before on the podcast years ago, that Saddam Hussein was buying up PlayStation 2s in bulk because of the processing power of them. And this is yeah. a PS2, so you're looking here like in a 2005, 2006, I think, um, maybe even before that, um, to build some kind of supercomputer. And I'm sure there's an element of truth within that with the processing capabilities of these devices uh, and what we have now. So you think, like you say, if you put... I remember also that phone batteries wouldn't need charged if you could put a tiny, tiny, tiny nuclear device in each one. But then what would stop somebody buying a load of so, uh, Samsungs or, or iPhones and blowing them up and causing you know a, a terrorist incident? And it's just you can't trust humans necessarily with that technology, can you, en masse? Well, uh, you know, I've had hate comments for this, uh, for saying that, you know, things shouldn't be divulged uh, because, you know, some people, I'll be honest, they're pretty clueless. Uh, and they just go, oh, yeah, you know, let's like, let it all hang out there. Like, you know, all the technology. And, I'm, and the people that I speak to, are people, you know, geniuses like Bob McGuire, right, who work for the Center for Defense Analyses. I talk to genius-level scientists like that, people who've been recruited uh, by DARPA, by the Center for Defense Analyses, by the DOD, recruited direct from school, people who have worked on UAP technology, and they're going, are are you crazy? Uh, Releasing, uh, you know, free energy uh, just like onto the open market because any... Well-developed actor like Hezbollah, which is a transnational criminal and uh, and terrorist actor with like billions over the past two decades in in drug money and illicit activities, um, and their patron Iran, they could very easily they're not stupid. Iran is not stupid. I've re- written extensive papers on Iran. Hezbollah are not stupid. I've written papers on them. They're not stupid. They can get the scientific knowledge. They could turn this free energy into the most devastating. Uh, Devastating weapon that would make uh, nuke that would make nukes look like firecrackers by comparison. This is what people that I talk to, who are in uh, the UK, uh, sorry, the, the US uh, defense and scientific community, are telling me: you do not let free energy uh, out into the open sphere because humanity is not ready for it. It's like yes, on the plus side, 
and you know they're humanitarians they want to help people they want to uh you know uh make sure that the earth isn't being destroyed to protect the ozone layer uh you know uh, prevent climatic change all the rest of it but humanity is not ready for this kind of technology it's i mean look we've barely scraped by with nuclear technology it is the americans have already used it on 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 the uh on the japanese how many times have we nearly come close to nuclear tech catastrophe are we really ready to unleash even more lethal technologies like uh onto the world stage that's what scares me well, I want to talk about some of the language within the bill, and it does actually keep on topic of what we're talking about. Um, uh, physiological studies are mentioned within the, the language of the bill, and we were talking about uh, things like Havana Syndrome. Thomas Winterton and others on Skinwalker Ranch have reported Havana Syndrome-like incidents. Uh, Thomas Winterton, who is the chief superintendent of the ranch, uh, reported that his, the, the skin and skull basically separated from his skull and had a huge yeah. fluid layer. Uh, and others who have been on the ranch have also reported things like this as well, haven't they, Frank? Yeah, um, that's a very uh, interesting question. Um, I was looking at uh, Gary Nolan's uh, Vice article, yes? And it said, um, Vice asked him, how does the impact of electromagnetic frequencies factor into your hypotheses about what exactly transpired here? And uh, Dr. Gary Nolan replies, with one of the patients, it happened on the Skinwalker Ranch. Given how deep into their brain the damage went, we can actually estimate the amount of energy required in the electromagnetic wave someone aimed at them. We don't think this has anything to do with UAPs. We think that somehow some sort of state actor and again related to Havana syndrome somehow, yeah? Uh, I can say I've been talking to... Um, several scientists uh, involved in uh, classified research uh, for the United States government. And I want to say here that nothing that they have told me is, uh, you know, is a state secret. They haven't told me anything classified, uh, but I have established their bona fides. They know people that I know. Um, these people are, uh, you know, like genius level, like Dr. Bob McGuire. Okay. Uh, the type of people who are, you know, recruited, uh, from school to work for agencies like NASA, DARPA, the DOD, uh, DOE. And um, they've told me that uh, uh, there is hostile state activity uh, that utilizes uh, portable directed energy weapons uh, to target them. And we're not talking uh, acoustic level um, directed energy weapons, uh, which is what is commonly reported on in the press. Uh, we're talking microwave energy, which literally fries you. And the, uh, the effects that they've received, they've been, they've been basically critically damaged by microwave radiation that has caused them traumatic brain injury. It's caused them, uh, you know, uh, kind of like intestinal digestive problems. Uh, it's irradiated their skin, uh, you know, cancer. Uh, these are the types of issues. And they, they told me that, uh, you don't just have now, uh, they said that uh, state actors, uh, principally like, you know, the Russians and the Chinese, they don't even have to use uh, portable directed energy weapons anymore, i.e. those that can be carried in vehicles. Um, now they can, uh, uh, they can basically hack your router, they can hack your phone, and they can cause frequent frequencies uh, that irradiate you. And one of the scientists, they actually sent me a picture of a, a Faraday cage, um, kind of like envelope that they have, 
which they keep their mobile phone in because they don't know when their phone is going to be hacked. Now, that's pretty scary technology, and obviously we're not necessarily here talking something non-human or exotic, but very much terrestrial. Why do you think this sort of technology is being used on on officials at places like Skinwalker Ranch? Well, the one of the same sources told me that... Uh, also, they said that it could be a... They said that the... The former Soviet Union had some kind of like scary, this is their, their language, some scary space-based based weapons that could, uh, that could fire directed energy weapons. And actually, if you look at my first paper, uh, Dr. Jack Sarfati talks about a, a kind of like a wormhole, a portal over Skinwalker Ranch that he said can be used as like, an, uh, uh, like a wormhole portal. But he said it could also be used as a kind of like a WMD to fry people below with... Uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation. Um, the reason why, and uh, my sources have said, um, if your ORSAP, the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program, your DIA, and you are trying to weaponize various phenomena on the ranch, because the DIA were there, okay, uh, I've spoken to a couple of insiders from there. Uh, they were first concerned with are there threats to the United States? Okay, because you've got like UFOs, you've got things coming through portals. This is all well established. Okay, so that could be a potential threat, something that's coming into your airspace through a portal. You don't know what it is. And also, you know, dogs being fried. Um, you're talking um, uh, cryptids that are, um, you know, immune to, uh, you know, ballistic weapon technology that can be shot at and like they don't die, like they regenerate, right? Um so you're talking a lot of potential threats there. So you'd want to understand what other potential threats, okay? Number one, you'd want to understand how to counter those threats. And number three, as DIA, you would want to understand how, uh, you know, I can uh, weaponize uh, those technologies and those phenomena, okay? That's thinking from, you know, a, a, as a military man. Uh, so adversaries would have uh, an interest in disrupting that. And that's what uh, two of my sources tell me, that... Um, adversaries like Russia, for example, would have an interest in disrupting uh, those kind of advancements. And, you know, if you look, if we look at, um, you know, I was in Iraq, right? I, I served with, um, okay, I was like um, running human na- uh, eight, um, networks. And uh, uh, I got a very good understanding of, uh, of what adversaries are trying to do. Um, and if you look at what uh, the Americans and the Israelis uh, were doing to the Iranians. In, in, in 2010, uh, they introduced a Stuxnet virus, right, to make the uh, Iranian centrifuges uh, have uh, excessive revolutions that they blew up. Recently, uh, the Israelis have assassinated America. Well, actually, going back to 2010, the Israelis have been assassinating uh, Israeli scientists, right, in complex attacks. They've been stealing uh, Israeli, uh, sorry, they've been stealing uh, Iranian um, information. Um, so why would not adversaries do that to uh, UAP technology and people working on UAP programs? Because you're, as an adver- a- from an adversarial point of view, the first thing that you'd want to do, you'd want to try and infiltrate the networks, right, to get access to uh, the level of advancement that the Americans have. If you can't do that, then second best default option is then you want to take out the scientists who are involved in that research. Does that make sense? Yes. Is it? Is it a dire commentary on the human condition that superpowers like the US, China, Russia, and others, you mentioned Israel, 
countries like Iran, North Korea, whoever else, any of these who have that sort of knowledge or confirmed knowledge of a non-human presence, a non-human technology, they're still at odds with each other from a military point of view, trying to jostle for power when there's something else out there. Yeah, I think it is a, I think it is a commentary on the human condition. Um, you know, and I've said this before. I mean, if I were, if I were uh, an extraterrestrial presence or an ultra-terrestrial presence, and I were looking at the human race, right? I'd be looking at um, a race of beings, basically monkeys with like nukes and you know, uh, sophisticated weaponry that are advancing exponentially and are now launching themselves into the outer reaches of the universe. Would I really want to share? my planet and my space with them. No, I wouldn't because humans are inherently violent. You only have to look at, uh, you know, what we've done to each other. I mean, you know, the Nazis did the Jews, the Khmer Rouge, you know, uh, Stalin, uh, Hitler, whatever, you know, we have done or, or the inquisition, in the middle ages, you know, and the things that the Europeans have done to each other, you only, or the things that, you know, the Europeans have done to the, the indigenous species, the indigenous inhabitants of, uh, you know, North America and South America, right? Uh, humans always screw things up wherever they go. We're like locusts. We go from one place to another. We gobble up resources and we screw whoever's in our way because we're greedy. So would you really want to spe- share space with us, especially when we're advancing really, really rapidly? That's the way that I look at it. But I think, yeah, it is a, it, it's a dire commentary on the human condition. I mean, the fact that, okay, I was in the UK military. Uh, Elizondo was in the American military. The fact that we have different human tribes and that we have to have militaries to defend our particular tribes is a commentary on the human species. I'm going to take that conversation forward in the listener questions section. So for anyone shouting at me to follow up on that, I will be, don't worry. But I just want to finish off a little bit on the... Yes, it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've got a few things I, I am going to follow up with you on, but I want to just finish I mean, off. Just say, a, a, lot of people, a lot of people have like, you know, um, sort of sent me like, you know, crappy messages or whatever, because they think I'm kind of like some uh, dark, deep space actor. But actually, I spent a lot of my time when I was in Iraq working for oil and gas companies, like, you know, vaccinating kids. This isn't to say like, you know, Frank is like a great guy or whatever, but like, I've seen the human condition. I've seen the human condition when people don't have access to vaccines, people don't have access to medical care, people don't have access to, to regular food, but I was in a position to do something about it. And I've seen the results of genocide on the ground. I saw what the Iraqis did to the Kurds, right? The, the, the Iraqis, they exterminated the Kurds right, in northern Iraq. I saw that with, you know, I didn't see the extermination moment, but I, I saw the villages that were destroyed. I spent three years of my life there. So I'm intimately acquainted with uh, the, the, the very poorer aspects, the darkest aspects of the human condition. And you, you can understand why any other species out there watching us, especially one or, or, or several species, if they can view time in a different way and they're looking at our history of the last 2000 years or more, and they're looking along at different timeline or time points, they're going this doesn't get any better as you go along here. They are constantly killing each other and wiping each other out. The technology gets better, but they don't. And like you say, the, the, the idea that, oh, if we get UAP technology for the good of humanity, everything will be fine. And you look and go, well, at what point in our technological advances have things got better for us as a species, as a whole? And it hasn't. It's still very sporadic and spread out as to who benefits from what. Yeah, I mean, there's also another aspect to that. Um, 
if you're looking at the, you know, uh, you know, the human species are being highly adaptable at warfare, you look at 1876, right, when the the Brits went into Zululand, right, from South Africa, and they thought, yeah, we're just going to like roll straight over the Zulus, and the the Brits got absolutely hammered at the Battle of Isildwana. Uh, four days later, there was the Battle of Rorke's Drift, which is the most glorious action in the history of the British Army, where uh, 120 Brits, uh, South Wales borderers, uh, held off a force of 3,000 Zulus. But the fact is that Zulus in the Battle of Islandwana four days before, they had like spears and shields and they annihilated 1,200 Brits who had cannons and the most, uh, you know, the most advanced uh, repeating rifles in the world at the time. So if you were an extraterrestrial species, you'd be looking and going, hang on, uh, even when these guys are low tech, they can still defeat other humans who are high tech. Yeah. Um it's like you say, the human condition is a very, very strange and complex thing. I want to also ask you about um, the language in the bill. It does mention working with allies. Now, you have mentioned the, the Five Eyes group. Are there any other countries you think would be some of the first to come forward to work with the United States or maybe any surprise contenders to, to broach this subject? Well, the first key one is, will be Brazil, right, in South America, because the Americans have always had a very close relationship with the Brazilians. And uh, you can see that in Calares and you can see that in, in various uh, UFO uh, encounters that, that, that the Brazilians have had. I mean, the Americans, they support the Brazilians as they supported other South American countries when they were uh, still in like, you know, deep, dark uh, military dictatorship. The Americans supported them just for the simple fact that they were anti-Soviet. Um, there's an increasing American relationship now with um uh, with uh, the Indians, who are also, you know, a technologically advanced country. First, increasing, um, you know, there's always been cooperation with Taiwan, which is another military, military advanced country, with Japan as well. So I would look, apart from NATO, apart from Five Eyes, I would be looking to Brazil, India, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, okay, Singapore, as key countries that the Americans would cooperate with on, on UAP. All those and, countries have 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 uh, have, uh, have uh, intelligence and defence uh, relationships, either formalised or informal, with the with the United States. And also, it mentions within the bill uh, capture and exploit the technology, which is a very suggestive comment, and it gets the mind and the imagination going. We are past the question already of are they real? Do you think, or actually, do you think it's a poor question? How far do you think we've already attempted to exploit the technology that we may already have? I'm told, I'm told that uh, by the scientists that I mentioned earlier, and I said again that they haven't told me anything classified, but I'm told that uh, the United States uh, and probably the UK, because like I said before, BA Systems is dug in deeper than Alabama Tick with the Americans, um, that the Americans are 20 years away. And that kind of fits in with what uh, Dr. Eric Davis said um, in uh, his April 2020 interview with Alejandro Rojas. Uh, when he's talking about, you know, we need to have our physics and engineering, you know, in uh, in uh, 2040 up to where the Tic Tacs ha- are, are uh, in case they turn around and decide to be a threat. So uh, that kind of fits with what e- uh, Dr. Eric Davis says, and that fits with what uh, my uh, sources have been telling me. I'm told that they already have um, not five observable craft, but they have, uh, you know, like triangles, uh, what some people refer to uh, as TR3B, although I don't really like that nomenclature. And uh, I talked to my colleague, um, uh, David Marler. Uh, he's an expert on triangle UFOs. 
uh, and he's at the SCU as well. Uh, he doesn't like TR3B, but I'm told that uh, by my sources, they've seen these kind of triangles, this kind of technology that the Americans have. Um, but they tell me that it's uh, it's still imperfect and it's still being worked on. And to get true five observable technology, it's going to take another 20 years. And that's why, why you... that's why uh, you know the interview that you did with Elizondo and uh, Jay at Project Unity, and when you know Elizondo said to Jay, um, you know, once Congress is interested in the UAP issue, it will be a fait accompli to give funding for a huge project. That kind of puts it in perspective. Why do you think all this is happening now? Why and so publicly as well? Has something triggered this happening, or was it simply? Lou left his job and decided himself to come out. Is this all one man's one man's job? I think it's a number of things. I think it's um, Lou leaving his job. I think it's um, if you look at uh, Harry Reid's uh, 2009 letter, I think that was very, very decisive. It was like, uh, you know, this is where we need to be. And if you look at that letter, there's a lot of very, very interesting things in there. Uh, people should go back and revisit that letter. Um, I think it's uh, uh, Lou. I said, you know, Lou and uh, and Chris Mellon. They they want to basically give a wake up wake up call, and they're giving that wake up call to Congress. Um, but also as well, I think it's been fueled by you know social media. The fact that um, you know there's a you know uh, UFO Twitter is pretty small, but it's it's very very vocal. And the fact that this has become a kind of like a national and international issue is because of social media as well. I think the time is that. You can't, it's getting very more and more difficult to hide, um, you know, these issues away from the public, especially when, you know, instantly, I mean, if you look back in the 1950s, you had various UFO organizations and they used to send out like, you know, email, they used to send out like letters, right? Like uh, snail mail letters. Uh, and they used to do conferences, but it was all by snail mail and they may be phoning people up. Now it's like instantaneous. Somebody discovers something like, you know, uh, you know, D.D. Johnson, right, on Twitter, and he just puts it out straight there. And, and immediately you've got, like, you know, any number of people in the world can follow that. It's uh, exponential use of, uh, um, you know, social media as an intelligence resource, effectively, and, and it's making it very much, much harder for uh, the U.S. to cover this up. And also, you know, you've got guys like, you know, um, you know Greenwald at the Black Vault, who's just, like, relentless uh, with, like, the foyer. And then... Uh, you have issues where it looks like, uh, you know, the um, the DOD uh, Freedom of Information Act people who act, you know, the people who are who are basically processing the FOIAs. It looks like they are trying to obfuscate um, the FOIA process. All that goes across social media and national media very, very quickly. It's become increasingly difficult to hide these things. Now, just before we get to listener questions, I've got one more thing I want to talk to you about because like you've talked about exponentially increasing technologies and the difference it's making, social media. The James Webb Telescope, as we speak, is unfurling its solar shield. Um, and it's incredible that the the achievement just to get that thing into space, let alone the hundred things that have to happen now it's in space for it to become fully operational. Uh, my co-host Dan referred to it as going from VHS to 4K DVDs, and we're going to see a whole new, a whole new light spectrum as well. Do you think the James Webb Telescope is going to play a part in finding other sources of life in the universe, or are we going to find that closer to home with organizations like the Galileo Project and SEU? 
look, I'm not a scientist, so I can't really say, uh, to be honest. I, I can only hypothesize. Um, yeah, as a member of the public then, I mean, but we're putting this thing up there. It's going to see further and clearer than ever before. Do you think that sort of technology, and actually I'll bring forward a question I was going to ask you later as part of the quickfire, even organizations like like NASA, do they still have a part to play in one day announcing we have found extraterrestrial life somewhere else? Or does that come through a, a government organization or a space force? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think NASA, or NASA already has said that they found life somewhere else with like microbes, right? Yeah, I, I get, these things are always debated, but you know we're we're talking that we send something up and there's there's a whole you know city of lights and Venus somewhere, or you know, and for those I know Venus isn't going to have. I a think city as of far lights, as web but... goes, like very possibly, but also if you have um, uh, you know, an advanced civilization that's visiting us, and we've seen that UAP are able to, you know, they have uh, you know, hypersonic velocities with like you know, with, with without signatures and also signature management then uh, you know, will we discover them in space? I'm not so sure. Uh, but I think there's a lot more that NASA has uh, on film uh, that we haven't seen yet, uh, or some things that have been leaked and we have seen. Um, look, I, I'm not a big believer. I don't trust big government in any sense, either the UK or, or, or the American government or anybody else. And I think that they know a lot more than they're telling us. Um, in terms of uh, uh, sort of disclosure, um, it depends what it means to people. I don't think that the American government or the UK government has any reason to disclose more than you know it needs to. And if it thinks it, if they think that they can continue along, uh, just basically giving the minimal kind of like dribble, then they will do so until forced to do so otherwise. Just before we get into listener questions, where we're going to approach some more of the what's the word, the speculation uh, that people have been throwing the questions at me for you. Some things we've not quite approached yet in the conversation that I'm looking forward to getting into. I'm going to hand over to our sponsors who have a quick message and then we'll be right back. Thanks to the sponsors and thank you for checking those out. Uh, if you don't want to hear adverts, remember folks, you can sign up to Patreon, Apple, Spotify uh, and check out those premium services. They're less than a price of a coffee and you don't have to hear the ads. But if you do, thank you very much for checking those out. Listen, Frank, I have a ton of listener questions for you here. Things we haven't quite touched on yet within the body of the interview. And I'm looking forward to discussing some of these more speculative areas with you. Straight Sheep, into, brother. Yeah, straight into Dave Lamborn. Dave wants to know, how prominent is the rumor amongst intelligence community about a cataclysmic event that could happen sometime relatively soon? Have you heard this from any independent sources? Yeah, very good question. I've heard this from three independent sources. Uh, one from the intelligence community and from two scientists. I cannot verify um, what they've said apart from they're all telling me the same thing. And I know I've spoken with Ross Coulthard and he's told me that he's heard the same thing from his sources. Um, but it's something that I, I can't physically verify. But uh, I would say I can't. I can't say one way or another. They believe that it's true. And when we talk cataclysms, are we looking here at like Armageddon, Independence Day? Obviously, you can't break trust, but can you tell us a movie that we should be kind of watching to brush up on? Well, no, I've been told various different scenarios that um, it could be a um, you know, meteorites heading towards the Earth. 
It could be, uh, and this sounds really, really out there. This is what I've been told. Okay, I can't prove this. It sounds really out there. Uh, people interfering with, uh, you know, uh, American nukes, uh, which would be uh, targeted uh, to destroy incoming asteroids. Okay. Um, then you add into the mix, like, you know, time travelers, uh, uh, one time traveler group, which is uh, Greys, us from the future who want the cataclysm to happen because they want to exist regardless of how screwed up they are and other future humans who exist just after the cataclysm happen and want to come back because they have the technology and want to prevent the cataclysm happening. Um, I can't substantiate any of that. Okay. It's stuff that I've been told and I believe my sources when they say they believe it. I have one source in particular. They tell me that they are in contact with temporal agents. Okay. So, there you go. Through no other thing other than coincidence, then again, if you don't believe in that, it might all be karma, whatever it might be. I had lined up Ross Coulthard, uh, Dr. Michael Masters, and then yourself as three interviews in a row. And people might think that was deliberate genius on my part as they've flowed together very well. Um, it was just pure, pure luck on my part. I managed to get three excellent guests. Dr. Michael Masters in the last interview talked about temporal, extra temporal visitors, what are your thoughts on the idea that we do have, and listen, time travel is a huge subject. If you want to think back to the future, you can, Tenet, any kind of movie, but it might be something far more strange and complex than we can even imagine how, how time may work. But do you think there's a likelihood that we do have some sort of, of time travel, time traveling entity or entities being involved with, with us as a species? Uh, personally, I do. And, um, you know, Mike Masters is uh, a colleague from uh, SCU as well. And I've talked to Mike, uh, you know, about this. And he's also spoken to one of my sources about this, who is, uh, like I said, a genius level scientist. Um, I believe it's quite possible. I personally don't have any proof. I personally haven't been contacted by uh, a temporal agent. But, you know, I'm speaking to people like for months now who consistently are saying that, you know, th that these things do happen. Um, and that they are in contact with uh, people from the future and that, uh, you know, we all have a destiny to play. So it's, uh, it's very hard for me to discount what they're saying. Let's put it that way, based on my relationships with them. And were they ever given or giving you any sort of time scales as to when events may happen or occur? I was told within the next 10 years. We're going to see it then. So if, if indeed it does happen, but when you're talking about time and timelines, you know, th things can and do change. And there's always the, the potential, like you, I think you very rightly said that you believe your sources believe it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that somewhere down the line, sources can be wrong or fed misinformation or things change. So that's why you've, you've always got to quantify those, those comments. Like I that, don't, don't believe you? that they've been fed misinformation because they are very highly placed, both in the intelligence community and also in the science world. Uh, in terms of, I mean, a couple of people that I'm talking to, uh, you know, they're up there, they're unknown, but in the science world, they're up there with Eric Davis and Hal Puthoff. They're in that kind of uh, pantheon, right, of, uh, of kind of like brilliance. Uh, I believe that they believe what they're saying. I just can't provide any proof. And, you know, me, Andy, uh, you know, I, I will always, if, I've, if I write a paper I'll put down, you know, Elizondo said this or Chris Mellon said that. And okay, you can take that to the bank or you can, um, 
you know, you, you can, uh, you know, decide what you want based on the, on the base of that. But the fact is that I will put down what somebody has said, or I will have an email that I can reproduce, or I'll have, you know, like from the Project Condon report, I will have, uh, you know, an extract from a declassified document. If I don't have that, then it's just hypothesis. Sure. And it, it's, do you know what? It's it's fun as much as cataclysms and cataclysmic events can be fun uh, to hypothesize about and discuss and talk about. So it's something we'll definitely be keeping an eye on. And, and hopefully those sort of events do not happen, obviously. On to Newman. Not, yeah. yeah, Newman has sent in some great questions recently. Has Frank any ideas in which way our genetics may have been tinkered with in terms of mechanisms and towards which, towards which abilities? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, I know John Ramirez does, um, but uh, I, I don't have anything really to add to that. I just, I just don't know. I think it's quite possible, but um, I've got no evidence or you know to back up anything that I would or would not say. And, and is that something you've heard about in your in your time in the IC community, or you know, in in, in the last couple? Nothing of years? I heard about in the IC, no. No, but you know, I can't discount it because uh, you know I've spoken to a lot of people, uh, experiences. I mean, I'm an experiencer, but I've spoken to experiencers, adductees. Um, I can't discount what people are saying because there's simply too many people who are saying the same thing. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, like a lot of the research that's been done, uh, you know, whether, whether it's John Mack uh, or others, there's just, you know, there, there, there are too many people saying the same thing. So I, I can't discount what they say. I just don't have any, any experience of it myself. And that's the best way to be. You've, you've mentioned, of course, you're an experiencer yourself. That's not something we've touched on. But so we're talking about, you know, you're you're meeting various officials. You're talking to various different sources. Yeah, you're, you're an experiencer. Does that sway? You've said you've got an open mind, but how much of your own experiences change what you do and don't take into you know consideration as being as being the truth? Well, put it this way. Um... From my own experiences, uh, talking to Colonel John Alexander, and he's uh, one of the only ones that I've shared my experiences with, uh, I believe completely in the hitchhiker theory uh, from Skinwalker because I had a a similar experience myself uh, after uh, having written my first paper and having been in kind of like deep discussions with Colonel John Alexander about Skinwalker, and I'll just leave it at that. But uh, it left no doubt in my mind that uh, you don't even have to have gone to Skinwalker. You could just be talking about it, thinking about it, writing about it, and you might have an experience. I can appreciate that. No, thanks for thanks for sharing. Um, Craig wanted to know, what evidence has Frank seen of uh, Holden's credentials? Holden is an, uh, an official we've heard about in the in the scene in the last couple of years, particularly. Uh, I've heard about him and I haven't checked him out. Um, I, I, it's just something that I haven't done. Um, I obviously check out all my sources, uh, whether I speak to a scientist or a member of the intelligence community. It's uh, um, They always know somebody that I know. Uh, for example... When I first reached out to Colonel John Alexander, um, I got his email from Dr. Jack Sarfati, and like they're not the best mates. They're not the best of mates by any by any stretch, right? But uh, I contacted Colonel John Alexander, and I said, um, I mean, this is kind of like my network, and I said, oh, um, do you know uh, you know Colonel Charles Beckwith, who was the founder of the American Delta Force? And John Alexander's like, oh, yeah, Frank. He goes, I know Charlie Beckwith. Uh, you know, we were on a ranger course together in 1958. And I went, oh, that's great, Colonel. I said, because, um, uh, you know, my old man, 
uh, knows Charlie Beckwith from Hereford days because uh, Charlie Beckwith went to Hereford uh, to basically train with SAS. So that was kind of like my, my in uh, to Colonel John Alexander. Um, so I've got that kind of network. Uh, and if I speak to people, I don't know, in the Central Intelligence Agency or the DIA, I've got networks, uh, people who know me and will introduce me to them. And then once you're introduced to them, then, you know, somebody new pops up and, uh, you know, uh, I will always go back to my contacts, go, do you know this person or do you know of this person? I'll go, uh, yes, he or she is legit or he or she is, you know, talking bollocks. And on this occasion, uh, Holden isn't one you've heard of yet or, or been able to to clarify or quantify. I, exactly I haven't, I haven't even checked up on him. I mean, I, I really, I, he, he hasn't been on my radar at all. Sorry, I did not see a question. No, no, that's okay. I just, I just wanted to make sure I hadn't missed that. Um, and is it someone that you plan on, or is it just a case of unless you come across them yourself, the, there's no need to? No, I'm, to be honest, I'm really that borrowed. I mean, I'm, I, I've got so, I've got such great contacts. Um, I haven't been writing papers just because I'm literally on signal um, and other means like every day. I probably spend about an hour to two hours a day talking with my sources just now. I mean, I've got enough material to write like a couple of books <laughs> if they would let me. But uh, I would never do that without, uh, you know, without their confidence to do so. Actually, one of my sources has said um, that they want to write a book with me, um, which would be very, very interesting. But they haven't come out of the closet yet. And, um, you know, obviously, I'm never going to expose my sources unless they want to be. But, uh, you know, that, that's the stage that I'm at at the moment. Maybe put something in the form of an interesting narrative and a story that you can, uh, you know, Tom DeLong seems to have done that quite successfully. So I'm sure there's room for it from a British perspective. Yeah, but you know me, Andy, I, I like to do things that are kind of like original. And I like to think that, you know, my first paper, my second paper were, were original. Uh, I want to do original things other people haven't covered. Um, you know, I do do kind of like uh, UAP news. Uh, you know, I covered like Gillibrand Amendment and things like that. But uh I think I'm more kind of like a deep dive kind of bloke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, and listen, let's get back into the questions. Christopher Conradi, um, Christopher said, stories about sightings by army personnel seem to always end with, I reported this to my superior and was told to keep it quiet. It never happened. And, and you've kind of mentioned that before with some of the pilot stuff going missing, often with evidence being destroyed in the process. Um, I wonder if Frank wants to speculate as to why this culture seems to permeate all levels of the military. Why would a lower level officer really care to make these observations disappear and care to the degree of destroying evidence and going way outside of protocol? The risk reward doesn't make sense. Uh, the truth is, I don't know. It would have to be on a case by case basis. Obviously, historically, there's been um, like a massive stigma uh, associated with uh, UAP sightings. Uh, one thing I will say is, to my knowledge, and you can read between the lines here, uh, that hasn't existed in, uh, in the UK. Okay. Uh, people can report things. I can't just say what they reported, but people have reported things. Um, but uh, yeah, stigma has, has existed for years and years and years. So, you know, if you want to advance, um, I mean, look at, look at Bob Salas. I mean, he reported his, his experiences and what happened at, at, at his miso silo. Right. Yeah. And it was taken seriously and he wasn't removed from his post. Okay. But he wasn't told anything about it either. So, you know, that's what you're dealing with. 
and that, and that's fair. Um, John Coughlin asks, uh, does Frank harbour thoughts on the deafening silence from the US Air Force? More conspicuous by the minute, focuses ever-increasing consideration that it is the nexus for historical and contemporary denial of the phenomena. Well, I think there's less deafening silence now from the US Air Force with the publication of um, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Because uh, when they're talking about the interview that they had with uh, Air Force officers, special investigations, uh, special projects, uh, they were told uh, that Air Force officers, special investigations had investigated the Northern Tier sightings in the 1970s. So I think slowly this is coming out. But um, what I still find intriguing is, you know, in uh, 2004, the Nimitz case, um, who was taking the hard drives, right? So these were Air Force officers being helicoptered out to uh, battle group ships, Air Force officers taking hard drives from the Hawkeye, uh, from the aircraft, and from the the Princeton. So who were these Air Force officers? Uh, were they Air Force officers, special investigations? And then who was carrying out, uh, you know, like the forensic analysis of uh, of the the data sets that they had? And and that still hasn't come out. Do you hold the belief that with the potential new office and the AOIMSG that the Air Force and the Navy, they may start working a little bit more together? Or is that still going to be something they're going to, they're going to fight as much as possible? As pertains to this subject, of course. Well, I think there's always going to be professional rivalry uh, because uh, you know, the Navy has you know, a huge amount of aircraft with the Marine Corps as well. Um, you got to look at it in terms of uh, the army has the American army has aircraft, uh, the Air Force has aircraft, right? An aircraft fleet. Uh, the Navy has an aircraft fleet. The Marine Corps have an aircraft fleet, although they're part of the Navy, and also um, the Coast Guard ha- have an aircraft fleet. Okay, so it's always a competition for resources. Uh, I think, though, that with I would like to think that with uh, the current NDAA as it has been signed off, that now, uh, because it's, it's basically a transposition of the different, um, different service branches also interlock with different uh, members of the American intelligence community. So uh, Army is part of the, uh, the Army intelligence is part of the, the intelligence community. Uh, Coast Guard intelligence is part of the intelligence community. Uh, Naval intelligence is part of the intelligence community. Uh, uh, Marine Corps intelligence is part of the intelligence community, right? Air Force intelligence is part of the intelligence community, and so on. So now that they've been main- mandated by Congress uh, to work together, uh, I think that they will work together better. Because if they don't, then uh, you know that then uh, their uh, senior uniform members are going to be have to uh, start asking questions. Peter wants to know uh, what do you guys think of what will come of John Greenwald from the Black Vault's FOIA appeal for the UAP Task Force info, the request that's due on January third or fourth, and also Happy New Year. So Happy New Year, Peter. Yeah, Happy New Year, brother. Um, I've got no idea, but uh, Greenwald is a top guy, and uh, I wish him all the best with that. But I've got no idea about an individual FOIA request. Uh, I know. I was just double checking that. Literally, as we were recording, John had put online that uh, he's had a reply to some stuff, but I've not managed to check that out yet. Um, so that's maybe something we can follow up on in a future pod, just in case it's the the response that he was expecting. But yeah, thanks again, Peter. Uh, Genosis says for Frank, do you have a favourite case, or based on what you know, a most credible case that involves not only a craft but interaction with an entity? 
Uf. Um, that's a difficult one. I mean, I'd say my favorite case is the 1976 Tehran case um, with fighter interceptors uh, trying to intercept uh, UAP. Uh, I don't have a favorite case that involves an entity. Um, although that South American one, uh, that film that Jacques Vallée did uh, mm-hmm. with that guy on the Pampers, right? That was very, very compelling. Um, so that that's an aw- awesome case. Have you seen, Frank, the, the Turkey UFO footage as it's known? Yeah, I have seen it, yeah. W- what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'll be honest, I'm not a... You know, I'm not an imagery specialist. Um, I saw, uh, what's the name of that Air Force guy? Um, he did a breakdown of it. He was very, very good. Uh, Chris Leto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Leto. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I actually chatted to him. Um, yeah, he did a very good breakdown on it. I don't know enough about it, but uh, it seems very compelling based on the work that he did. I mean, um, you know, he's a former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force. If he pays attention to it, then, then it's worth it, then it's worth uh, worthy of study. And if people want to go back and check, I interviewed Chris a few months ago as well, and he's a good guy. He's got a, a good channel, and definitely be checking that out, folks. Um, he, he's sound, and I mean, he comes at it from, you know, he was an air safety expert. Apart from being, you know, uh, like a, you know, basically, a, you know, a top pilot, an air safety expert, uh, and uh, you know, an aerial investigator. So, you know, he's a very, very credible guy to be investigating these things. Yeah, I think on that interview, we we done about 30 to 40 minutes just on his background before of any UFO chat. And we left it in just because of the extensiveness of, of, of his experience. So um, like you say, that, that does help. Um, not to say it means he's definitely right, but like you say, from a credibility point of view, he's presenting the best evidence he has in, in front of him, which is, which is always well, he, welcome. He, to me, he's a lot more credible than skeptics. I mean, he's actually done the business. He's actually, yeah. uh, you know, flown his aircraft into harm's way, right? So, um, Absolutely, yeah. You know, and protected the skies above us. So, uh, you know, a guy like that is always going to have my respect. Um, speaking of respect, uh, Nathan, who is a long-time listener and also co-host on a few shows now, um, he says, I pretty much agree with Frank that if the US has some sort of advanced tech stemming from the study of the phenomenon, that such tech should remain in the black as long as possible. However, I wonder to what degree he has heard or suspects that the others may push a disclosure timeline regardless of what the government may prefer. Has he heard of any intel suggesting this possibility? I haven't, no. Uh, it also follows up, to what degree do you think that others themselves may be engaged with the government? Are they passively or actively engaged? I believe very deeply engaged, but uh, I've got no proof of that. And is that, again, just off the back of, like you mentioned sources mentioning temporal agents. That's as far as you can really go in terms of, I've been told, but there, there's no evidence. Correct. That's that's totally fair. And again, thanks to Nathan for the question. Jared, how will the new language in the NDAA um, about sharing information with foreign partners change information sharing? We've been told information sharing has already been happening through Five Eyes, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think information sharing, especially between uh, you know Great Britain and the United States, um, you know, we're the closest allies, right? A lot of people think that uh, Israel is America's closest ally, but actually it's Great Britain. Um if you look back to Rendlesham, um, that sharing has been on UAP has been, uh, you know, right from the start. Uh, so I think this is just really formalizing a, a relationship that's already there. Um, uh, Ross Coulthard has also got things to say about that. But I think if you look at the deeper relationship, this, this is, 
what's in the NDAA is really just formalizing what's already been there for years and years. And I think that's the, the language in the NDAA is just a means for Congress to formalize and to say to uh, the USIC and the DOD, uh, you will tell us what's going on with allies. Jack Thomas, final question. He had a couple of questions of which we've touched on already, but he mentioned the the cataclysm comments that you've made and we've just talked about. He wants to know, do you think that the appetite for what seems to be a, a part disclosure from the US government is related to potential cataclysms? I'm told yes, maybe. Um, but again, I've got no proof for that. Uh, I keep an open mind. I, I wish I could say more, but I can't. It would just be speculation. No, that's totally fair. And listen, if you ever want to speculate, people do enjoy it. But I know, Frank, and I've heard you on other interviews that you try and keep it as evidence-based as possible, which which I can totally respect. Yeah, exactly, mate. I want to finish off with the quick fire round. I've got quite a few topics here that I, I want to touch on. You can say as little or as much on each one as you like, or you can pass if you don't have any particular thoughts. Um, so as we have been recording, and um, we've just took a quick break, I have one more listener question sent in from longtime listener Dave Smethurst, and I hate to miss off any of Dave's questions. Dave says, uh, Frank, I recently read about a Dr. Dan Burrish, formerly known as Crane, who featured in a book by William Hamilton called Project Aquarius. To cut a long story short, Dr. Burrish claimed to work at the S4 facility at Area 51 and claims to have come into contact with future human Nordics and Greys in a conflict trying to prevent or allow a catastrophe in the near future. It sounds very similar to your recent accounts and I wondered if this was related to the info you had heard or and was indeed the source of it. Cheers, Dave, and hi. Um, I haven't specifically heard about that case, but uh, it does sound similar to what I've been told. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm very wary when, you know, people talk about Graves or Nordics. I bow uh, to the superior knowledge of my SU colleague, Dr. Michael Masters, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, hominin evolution. Okay. I'm not scientifically equipped to deal with that kind of equation. Um, but, uh, you know, I, all I can do is keep an open mind, but it does sound what you say, very similar to what I've heard. Frank, and I'm going to be selfish and, and put in my own listener question here. It's my podcast. So I it. get to do that. We've not really touched on this and as best you can, and I know you've seen the type who doesn't like to really speculate or or give you know off the cuff opinion, but I have to ask: when we come into this subject, it's usually other aliens coming from other planets and little flying saucers, yes or no, and that's a fascinating question. Anyway, where you're at now, right at the last last days and hours of 2021, what do you think, in your opinion, is the most likely happening behind the phenomenon? If someone asked you in a few sentences to sum up, you know. Aliens, do you believe in all that? What's going on? What would you say? I would say yes, no, and I don't know. Um, I can keep a completely open mind. Uh, I've asked some of the most intelligent people that I know, like Dr. Michael Masters, uh, you know, David Marler, Colonel John Alexander, um, you know, Rich Hoffman, who's been studying uh, the phenomena since, uh, you know, since before Blue Book started. I keep a t completely open mind. Uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis, certainly. Uh, Ultra-terrestrial, uh, extra-dimensional, uh, all those are possible. Just look at Skinwalker. Uh, I, I keep an open mind. I don't know. I don't have the answers, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to know one day. 
not yet. If you had the answers, that would be a hell of a best-selling book, I'm sure. That would be original. Um, listen, let's finish off with the quick fire round. Again, few words, few sentences on each of these. Uh, yeah, first one is, what are your thoughts on Skinwalker Ranch and what's happening there? Uh, I think Skinwalker is uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I absolutely believe uh, what we're being told in terms of the shows. Um, and I think it's uh, highly credible, the research they're doing there. I think that we just see, uh, you know, probably 10% or 5% of what they're actually going through there. The role of consciousness and UAPs. Um, yeah, that's another excellent question. Um, I think consciousness plays a very big part. Um, I don't know to what extent, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I want to find out more. But I believe uh, it could be, you know, uh, we are being, you know, fooled by uh, some kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, our own psychological prejudices towards it or some kind of technology that basically influences us or some kind of mind to mind communication uh, that, uh, you know, that gives us images that aren't actually there. Uh, some of it may be real. Some of it may be not. Your thoughts on the abduction phenomena. I keep a completely open mind. Um, I've spoken with a number of ab ad abductees, um, including my mother, I'd have to say, and uh, I believe it completely credible. Is that something you've talked about in the past, that, or is is that one of those that you you go as far as I your mother's had in the past? No, but I believe it's absolutely credible. I mean, uh, I'm an experiencer. There's just far too many people, and I've talked to people, credible military people as well. Well, I mean, you know, I, I will take anybody as credible unless they're a proven charlatan and bullshitter. Um, I've, I've I've spoken to far too many people who've had abduction experiences uh, not to take it seriously. It's like uh, you can't have you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people making this, making these things up and making up the same kind of claims. It's, it's just not possible. So Absolutely. I find it highly credible. Um, your thoughts on cattle mutilations? Yeah, I believe um, I've been told um, by scientists that I talked to that uh, one theory is that cattle, cattle, cattle mutilations may be um, linked to future humans in terms of they are in a, a future biodegraded environment uh, where there isn't enough protein, where animals have died off, and that they want to synthesize and uh, and clone uh, proteins uh, for their consumption. Interesting. Um, your thoughts on crop circles? Yeah, crop circles another interesting one. I've been told by scientists that um, that is a result, apart from the the ones that are hoaxed, uh, that is a result of UAP uh, extracting uh, energy from the ether. But they won't tell me how or why because that's classified sure and that's something we're going to do a crop circle show on in 2022 because i've i've not avoided but just not come across doing that doing that yet so really interested in that i don't know uh, enough about it to be honest but i'm just told that the uh uh the physical characteristics of like the corn stalks it is indicative of uap activity extracting a particular kind of energy from the from the ether that's what i'm told what are your hopes for the UAP subject in the coming year? Um, I hope that there will be one UAP office and not two. Uh, and I hope that it will be, uh, you know, as mandated by Congress. And I hope that uh, it will be uh, to the spirit and also to the letter of the law. And uh, I hope that uh, the next uh, unclassified report will give us like more information than the one that we received uh, last June. Do you think we're likely to see any more of those videos that we've not had for a couple of years now? 
I don't know, but I'd like to see why, for example, we shouldn't see something declassified from, I don't know, the 1950s, the 1960s, something that uh, uh, was captured maybe by satellite or by an aircraft sensor that is no longer classified. Sure. That, that would see be why that, that shouldn't be released to the public, because it, it, it doesn't give away American cap- or, or British capabilities. No, of course. Uh, and the final one is what does disclosure mean to you? Okay, disclosure means different things to different people. Uh, some people uh, want it to mean, um, you know, like let it all hang out on the line and you open the hangar doors. Uh, and also, unfortunately, some people, I think it's because they want to bring down the American government. Uh, I don't know, it's maybe like um, related to anarchism because they don't trust uh, the government and they want to basically break down all the barriers. I think that uh, some secrets uh, have to be kept secret. And, you know, I was a part of that world. I think what should be declassified to the public should be declassified. I think for me, disclosure is uh, there's been secrecy for far too long. uh, And I would like to see, you know, the public getting a lot more information. Obviously, if we're not alone in the universe or not alone on Earth, then, uh, you know, we all have a right to know that within the bounds of uh, of national security, something that will not give uh, assistance to the likes of, you know, China, Russia, Iran, etc. But, you know, we all have a right to know uh, you know, about our own existence and what can improve our own existence and, you know, whether we're alone or not. I mean, because, you know, that is the ultimate question, isn't it? Absolutely is. In the description to this show, I'm going to have links to those papers that you mentioned that you've written in the past, um, because those are something that people will ask me about, no doubt. And also your social media handles, how people could get in touch with you. But do you want to just finish off, Frank, letting people know what's to come for yourself in the coming year as well? What can we expect from you? Yeah, sure. Um, I've actually been uh, very kindly invited, um, kind of all expenses paid, to um, uh, the largest um, uh, security and defense conference in the world coming up in January. So I'm going to go and do that. And I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, advanced kind of like beyond next generation uh, technologies. Okay, it's not like a UAP conference per se, but uh, I'll get UAP in there somewhere. Uh, But it's going to be nice to me. It's going to be like... um, it's going to be, you know, the first time away that I've had in, in, in two years since all this, this COVID crap hit. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. And um, it's uh, the former head of MI5 is going to be there uh, as a keynote speaker, uh, the former head of the UK defense staff. Uh, so it's going to be uh, a very, very interesting event. Excellent. Well, Frank, I look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully in the coming year and also hearing more from you. It's been a great talking with you. Thank you very much, Andy. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more.
how the stairs in there was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your